The title of our lesson this evening is, Why I Don't Drink Alcohol. And uh, some might say, you know, why should we even talk about this? Um, Aren't there more pressing issues facing the church than a little bit of alcohol use? And to that I would say, first of all, I think this is the first time I've ever really broached this subject uh, here Uh, And I've been in the preaching role here for almost four years, so it isn't something that I've talked about. It's not something we talk about all that often, Uh, and it is a pressing issue in our culture. Uh, It is a pervasive issue, and it touches touches each of us in one way or another. I doubt there's a person in the room tonight whose family has not been impacted by alcohol. Um, My family has been impacted by alcohol. Members of my family uh, are alcoholics. Lauren's family has been impacted by alcohol. Uh, She had an aunt who passed away at a pretty young age as a direct result of her alcoholism. Uh, That was unknown to most members of the family until after she passed. So it's something, alcohol, the abuse of alcohol affects all of us. And maybe it's a temptation for uh, some of you here tonight, or maybe it has been in the past. So it's something that that touches each and every one of us, Uh, and it's nothing new. Alcohol has created serious problems in our society for many, many years I want to take you way, way back to 1888, a year that I don't think any of you remember. Um, Writing in the Gospel Advocate, a lady named Selena Holman, who lived the county over in Lincoln County in Fayetteville. I did a research paper uh, on her a few years ago for a different issue, but she was very involved in the temperance movement, which fought against alcohol use and abuse in this country for many decades. And she vividly describes the negative impact of alcohol, especially on the mothers of sons who struggle. I want you to listen to what she says. She says that the damage that the gambling rooms and the whiskey shops have done to young men has sent thousands of mothers to premature graves. She says it is these houses of sin and shame, licensed and legalized and permitted to exist, that is tempted and led astray the sons of Christian mothers and landed them in the prisons and the penitentiaries. She says she longs to see a day when no licensed saloon or other school of crime would stand with brazen front to entice their sons to ruin an eternal death. Tis this great wrong to woman that has cut into her heart like a great festering cancerous sore for ages. Very vivid words to describe the problem of of alcohol that faced our country. And some might say, you know, surely she is exaggerating a bit. I don't think so. Uh, Historian Ruth Borden notes that in the year 1900, just a few years after she wrote this in the Gospel Advocate, Americans spent five times as much on alcoholic drinks than they did on public education in the year 1900. So this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. This has been a major problem for our country for many years. At the end of the 19th century, the 1800s, there were as many saloons in Chicago as there were grocery stores. And of course, alcohol continues to plague our land. 
Not too long ago, the New York Times reported that about one in six Americans has a drinking problem. One in six. That's defined as excessive drinking or alcoholism. Um, About 80% of college-age people drink. And half of those binge drink on a regular basis. That made me think of something that I read uh, many years ago in this book, Sticky Faith, which has been a resource that I have turned to time and again uh, in thinking about what helps faith stick in our young people, how we can foster a faith that they will take with them when they leave high school and beyond. Listen to this um, excerpt. The good news is that multiple studies indicate that students who are more religious and and or more likely to attend church or religious gatherings are less likely to consume alcohol or hook up. Hook up, a phrase for engaging in casual sexual encounters. Kids who are more religious are less likely to drink and to behave in that way. Yet just because religious kids are less likely to party doesn't mean that they aren't partying at all. In a pilot study we conducted early in our research, 100% of the 69 youth group graduates we surveyed drank alcohol during their first few years of college. Surveyed 69 students, all of them drank alcohol during their first few years of college, 100%. One member of our Sticky Faith research team, Dr. Cheryl Crawford, focused her research on kids who had been designated as leaders in their youth ministries in high school. After extensive conversations with these former student leaders, Dr. Crawford concluded that loneliness and the search for friends seem to push the buttons for everything else. The primary reason students gave for participating in the party scene was because that's where everyone was. One student said, I don't think I've met many people who don't drink here. It's really hard to meet people if you don't drink. These key decisions about partying are made during the first two weeks of students' freshman year. So it's a problem, alcohol use and abuse. And to a cultural issue this far-reaching and this damaging, we need a thoughtful, robust Christian response. We, as the church, have got to be talking about it. We've got to be discussing it. We've got to be able to think theologically and biblically about this issue. And that's what I hope to do tonight. That's what I hope to provide as I share with you my personal reasons for abstaining from alcohol uh, and why I think it's best for Christians to not drink. Now, I don't want to present this lesson uh, with a holier-than-thou attitude. I I don't want to share these things from a place of moral superiority. I'm not here to beat everybody over the head. Uh, I just think that a compelling case can be made for uh, leaving alcohol alone. And there's a lot that could be said and maybe should be said that's not going to be said tonight. This is a big issue. And so you may walk away with things you wish had been discussed that won't be. That's okay. But tonight, I simply want to provide five reasons why I choose not to drink. The first is this. Drinking leads to drunkenness. Uh, which is sinful, according to the Scriptures. This is when you're going to need your Bible. So, if you brought your Bible, I hope you brought your Bible. Go ahead and grab it. And we'll turn to a few places here.
Can we say with absolute confidence that the Scriptures forbid drinking altogether? I don't think that we can. I could be wrong about that. Maybe you disagree with me about that. Uh, and you can tell me that later, you know, when, when you see me out in the lobby. But, do the Scriptures forbid the state of having too much to drink? Drunkenness? Yes, they absolutely unequivocally do. And can a strong case be made that to, in order to avoid the state of drunkenness, you, shouldn't, you just shouldn't drink at all? Yes, I think there is a strong case to be made for that. Um, one verse among many that we could turn to is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk. That's not what the Christian life is all about. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There's a contrast here between strong drink, being filled with that, and being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That is what should be controlling you and compelling you, not alcohol. And according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, Peter says, drunkenness and drinking parties have no place in our new life in Christ. Peter says those things characterize the old you, not the new you in Jesus Christ. Well, maybe you would ask, why is drunkenness off limits? What's the big deal about getting drunk every now and then, you know, if it's not hurting anybody? Um, several reasons, I think. First of all, the Christian life demands sobriety. Uh, we could look at Several dozen verses in the New Testament that say something to this effect. Be sober-minded. Be sober. Uh, here's one, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. If you want to turn there. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So in other words, the life to which we have been called as Christians is so important and requires such attention to detail that we must be in command of our faculties at all times. Those are the words from a blog post by Wes McAdams. This Christian life to which we have been called is just so important that it requires our full attention. And we've got to have our wits about us. Uh, our... Uh, Thinking and our vision and our behavior must not be impaired. Because as Peter says here, the devil is, is prowling about. And we have got to be as clear-headed as we can possibly be in order to resist him. And I don't know about you, but I don't need anything extra to help me struggle with sin. Or to help me act like an idiot. You know, I can do those things pretty good all by myself. I don't need an extra substance that's going to make it even harder for me to follow after the way of Jesus Christ. We as Christians have been called to be sober-minded. The Christian life is so important that we cannot afford uh, to not have our wits about us at all times. Why else might drunkenness be off limits? Well, another reason would be because of the damage that drinking, excessive drinking over time does to our bodies. The New Testament 
talks about a very high view that God has for our bodies. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body houses the Holy Spirit of God, if you are a baptized believer. And what's more, Paul reminds us, you don't belong to yourself anymore. A lot of people will say, well, it's my body. You know, I'll do with my body what I want. The New Testament says, no, it's not. Not anymore. Not when you surrender your life to Christ. Your body is not your own. It belongs to God. Why? Because you were bought with a price. God allowed His Son to give up His body on a tree on the cross so that your body could be redeemed and belong now to God. Your body is important. Because it houses the Holy Spirit. So glorify God in your body. And trashing our bodies with drugs uh, or with excessive eating, with alcohol, damages them. And it shows our disrespect for the high view that God has for our body. So high that He's willing to gift us with the Holy Spirit. Alcohol, as you know, alcohol use can lead to permanent damage to the brain, to the liver, among many other problems. And then when you try to get off alcohol, excessive use of it, all kinds of other health problems arise. Why else might drunkenness be off limits? Because it leads to disastrous, sometimes deadly consequences. I was really moved recently by a Facebook post by Gerald Smith, who is a retired history professor from Sewanee, uh, and whose granddaughter attends our school, WCA. Some of you may have seen this post, those of you who might be friends with him. This is from April. He said, this night, this hour, 25 years ago, I made a vow. This is why. Folks, the culture of alcohol is the poison of Sewanee. This is a, this is a teacher for decades up at the university. I'm speaking of the culture, not the beverage. The culture is what shapes our expectations, our behaviors, our outlook so that we think about the occasions of alcohol. We live in a swirl of expectations about our parties. This culture is pervasive and it affects even those who do not drink. The culture sets the agenda of our social life, of our behaviors, of our self-image as we move from one alcohol-infused situation to another. Seldom can we be photographed without an alcoholic beverage in hand. Seldom is there a social event where alcohol is not present. Wine and cheese is innocuous until it even becomes part of the way we conduct seminars. At Sewanee, this culture of alcohol is intensive and pervasive. And far too often, it has created the conditions for tragedy. Across my 47 years of teaching, nearly two dozen Sewanee students died. Not all from alcohol, but most of them. I stood beside Yetta Samford, black tie, drinks in hand, three minutes before he died. I was unfit to drive as well. I should never have let him drive, but it was a great party. We were going to change and meet up later and drink some more. Yet a died hitting a tree near my house. I pulled Zach Hayslip's shattered head away from the car dash where he had hit a tree at St. Mary's Curve. I stood with screaming students who had just seen him die. 
I have seen these things for more than 40 years, just as my professional colleagues in emergency services see them year in and out. After Zach's death, I knew I had to change even if I couldn't change Sewanee. A few years later, on April 18, 1993, I used the occasion of the anticipated birth of my first granddaughter to make a solemn vow before God. I will not drink again. Not because I had a problem with alcohol myself, but because I was part of the larger problem that is the culture of alcohol at Sewanee. I vowed not to drink again to bear witness as long as I live against this culture that is destroying the best things of the place that I love. I have taught so many of you. I have partied through the night with some of you. I treasure the memories of all that we did together, but my heart screams at the waste and tragedy that has followed so many of us. To hold one of you in my arms while we bury your child is perhaps more than I can bear anymore. We can't pass a law, we can't ban alcohol, we can't suppress all parties, but we can live differently. We can bear witness that you do not have to validate yourself by drinking or making others drink. I will not drink, not ever again, because of Sewanee, for Sewanee. Drinking leads to drunkenness. Many people begin drinking for various reasons, but they wind up drinking in order to get drunk. And being drunk stands in stark contrast to living a Christian life, the life that that God intends for us. Number two, drinking can be a stumbling block to others. And so I don't do it. Drinking can be a stumbling block to others. We could look, uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians. We've been in 1 Corinthians a lot, though, recently. So uh, I'm going to look instead in the book of Romans, what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 15. Listen very carefully to what he says. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Pay attention to verse 15 especially. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And we, for our purposes, could change eat to drink. The question, is this right or wrong, is a question we always must ask as Christians when we make decisions. But it is not the only question that we should ask. Another question that we should ask is, by doing this, am I walking in love for others? By doing this, am I going to put an obstacle in the way of someone in coming to the faith or in developing in their faith? By doing this, am I going to cause somebody to stumble? Listen to this excerpt from a Christianity Today article. This uh, writer says, My peers, most of them traveling along upwardly uh, mobile career paths, constantly reference alcohol, especially on social media. Maybe you've seen this. Posting pictures of a frothy, dark Guinness. Tweeting about needing a glass of wine after a long day with a toddler hosting a birthday party in a hipster whiskey bar. Churches are hosting small groups like Think and Drinks, talking theology over craft beer. And with every picture, tweet, and event that centers on alcohol, I wonder, isn't anyone friends with alcoholics? In other words, 
if people actually thought about other people who might be tripped up by all their posts about alcohol, if people knew people who actually struggled with alcoholism, then maybe they wouldn't be sharing so much about how they enjoy to drink with their friends. We don't, as often as we should, consider other people. Isn't anybody friends with alcoholics? Being a Christian is about sacrificing our rights for the good of others, out of love for others. And in our culture of alcohol abuse and addiction, the most, one of the most loving things that we can do for people who are struggling is abstain, is do without for their sake because of our love for them. We should also think about the example we are setting for the next generation. And I'm thinking about parents and grandparents, but really I'm thinking about the whole church because we all play a role in raising up the next generation to follow the Lord. Uh, I listened to an old chapel sermon by Marshall Keeble, the great preacher, and, who passed away many years ago, but he talked pretty frankly, bluntly about drinking in this chapel presentation. And in one section he says this, you are going to have to live right in front of your children. If you don't want them to smoke, don't you smoke. You don't want them to drink beer, take it out of the Frigidaire. Now, that seems like common sense, you know? But sometimes us parents and all of us adults need that reminder. If we don't want our children to behave in certain ways, then we've got to set that example for them. And it's not going to be good enough to say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Because they will follow our example and not our words in the long run. Listen, I don't want to be responsible for, as Jesus said, causing one of these little ones to stumble. I think about Jesus' words in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That would be a better alternative than if I, as a responsible, faithful adult, do anything to cause a young child or believer to be tripped up in their journey towards the faith. If there is even a slight chance that my alcohol use might turn into alcohol abuse among my kids, then I'm going to do without it to prevent that from happening, even if it's a slim possibility. Are we willing to do that out of love for our children? We don't want that to turn into a stumbling block for our kids, or for anybody for that matter. We don't want to put obstacles in the way of people. We want to live uh, in, in ways of love towards not just believers, but non-believers as well. And so, because drinking can be a stumbling block to others, I do without. Third, drinking is expensive. Alcohol is not cheap. Uh, and my money is better spent elsewhere. And you may say, well, you could make that argument for a lot of things, a lot of luxuries that we as Americans could do without. Uh, but this is... This is an important point, among others, I think. According to one estimate, college students spend $5.5 billion each year on alcohol. 
That's more than they spend on soft drinks, tea, milk, juice, coffee, and get this, school books combined. And you know how much school books are. That's, that's the kind of money we're talking about here. And so it's hard for me to see how spending a lot of money on alcohol squares with practicing good stewardship. I just can't, I can't fit those two together. Um, stewardship meaning caring for the gifts that God has entrusted to, to us, whatever they are. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father in heaven. God has given us many things, and I just can't figure out how being a good steward jives with spending a lot of money on alcohol. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And here Peter is talking about spiritual gifts. But I think it could be applied to any type of blessing from God. Use it wisely. Use it for the good of others. Be a good steward of God's favor, of His blessings in your life. And so because drinking to me is not a wise, beneficial use of my money, I'm, I'm not going to... I'm not going to spend my money on it. Uh, Number four, drinking can damage my influence as a Christian. Uh, It can hurt my ability to bless other believers. It can hurt my witness among unbelievers. Um, I heard a story several years ago about a young couple. They were new Christians. They attended a party with other Christians where most everyone was drinking. And this couple had come out of a past full of heavy, heavy drinking. But when they became Christians, they decided we are going to turn our backs on that lifestyle. They gave up drinking altogether. And they were excited about this first get-together with their new Christian friends. But then when they got there, they were disappointed. They were confused to find alcohol there. To this couple, alcohol was associated with slavery and bondage to sin, not freedom in Christ. And when we don't honor that, our ability to influence others takes a big hit. We've got to consider that consuming alcohol can hurt our standing and our reputation among believers and non-believers alike. We should aim to live above reproach. That's 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. And I know that that actually is one of the qualifications for an overseer or an elder. But why shouldn't all believers aim for this ideal, to live above reproach? That simply means to live in such a way that people would have to, it it would be a stretch for them to find anything about which they could speak against you. But I'm afraid, like it or not, if you are involved in drinking, it will not be hard for many people to find a strike against you. So to me, in order to live above reproach, that's an aim of mine. If it's an aim of yours, then that involves abstaining from alcohol so that no one can can see that and think less of me as a believer. So I abstain because drinking can damage my influence as a Christian. Here's the last 
reason that I want to leave with you, and there may be other reasons that we could list, but just five this evening. And it may sound a little funny to you, but I think there's some truth to it. Number five, I don't need alcohol when I've got Jesus. Is Jesus enough for you? And some people might say, well, I, can I have both? <laughs> I mean, I love Jesus. Can I also have a drink on the side? But I think <coughs> many people drink because they're looking for something. They're looking for something meaningful from alcohol. What is it people think that they're going to find in the bottle? What promises does the bottle make to us? Is it the promise of acceptance? That if I do this, I'm going to have friends, I'm going to fit in? Well, if you must drink in order to make or keep friends, then you need to take a hard look at who you consider to be friends. And for our younger crowd here tonight, I would just like to offer a reminder that it is illegal for people under 21 to drink anyway. And so acceptance, is that what we're looking for? Or maybe is it escape from problems or pain? A lot of people go to the bottle to numb significant pain in their life. But ask any alcoholic and they'll tell you there are far better ways to cope with pain in your life. And they'll tell you alcohol doesn't remove problems. It makes them worse. It compounds is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for happiness? Are you looking for something that will help you have a good time? Are you looking for something in the bottle that will make it easier for you to get along with others? Listen to these words also from Wes McAdams. You know who has fulfilled those promises? For me, Jesus. I don't care if you think that's corny, it's true. There is absolutely nothing a bottle has to offer that Jesus isn't already giving me. Through His Spirit, He is giving me love, joy, and peace. And through the cross, He is taking away my worry, fear, and guilt. I'm still a work in progress, but I'm content. I don't need anything a bottle has to offer. And so I don't drink alcohol because I don't think I need alcohol. Because I've got Jesus. These are my reasons for abstaining. I hope that they are helpful to you. Um, and like I said earlier, I'll be out in the lobby when we wrap things up for any comments, complaints, questions of any kind, even the ones that I can't answer and I'll freely admit to you when I can. But I would, um, I would like to close this out in prayer. You know, we started this session talking about young people, people, people going off to college, and this is a season of transition for, for some in our number uh, who are transitioning from high school to college and who will be facing a litany of new temptations, alcohol being among them. I want to pray for those students. I'll also pray for any of our students who will soon, in the coming weeks, be headed back to college and facing those temptations once again. I want to pray uh, that the church will be able to speak more openly about this problem and will be able to reach people who are struggling with alcohol addiction. Uh, and I want to pray for anybody 
in our number, maybe not tonight, but seated in these pews on any given Sunday who struggles or has family members who struggle with alcohol. So if you would, before we close, please bow and let's pray.